It's you! My waterproofians, you're back! I know this episode is arriving a little later than they normally do, and that's because it's summertime and I've been traveling, I've had everything from work-related trips to vacations, but I'm here, still here to bring you more episodes to talk about great music, and I'm so happy you're back, or if you're visiting me for the first time, welcome to Waterproof Records. I am Jacob Givens, and I'm here to guide you on some uh, memories or experiences from the past, and something I'd love to say up front is that I am not a music historian or expert by any means. I started this show because I love music and I love sharing my memories and experiences of music and maybe teaching you a thing or two about a band you didn't know, but I am, uh, you know, capable of making some mistakes when it comes to my research. Um, Not too long ago, I had done an episode on Jeff Buckley and I had a very big fan of uh, Jeff Buckley comment on the YouTube video that I posted that, you know, I got some of the facts wrong. And I, you know, I humbly apologized and said, you know, that's bound to happen when you're looking up things online, especially a posthumous episode, somebody who's no longer alive. And there's accounts that go back to the 90s. Um, So I will occasionally make mistakes. And I encourage you by all means, if you want to reach out and be like, hey, correction, that's not actually true about that band. I'm open to it. I'm not one of those people that is is claiming to be the authority on this information. And uh, I get it. Sometimes I'm going to get things wrong because for me, I think that the spirit behind Waterproof Records is I am taking this time to take you back with me. And I think that over time, as the show grows and we get more guests, we'll have opportunities to hear from experiences that other people had and also talk about new bands, uh, you know, talk about music, what, what's happening now, as well as be nostalgic. I'm open to both. But I didn't start this so that I would be the person that just gives you all the information and the, all the facts and just goes down this list of how the album came to be. It's more important for me to share a feeling. You know, that's that's what the show's about. It's about a feeling. I want you to leave the show with a feeling. Um, but today... We are going to talk about an album that I think really, really does um, represent this time in the 90s. And uh, it's right there at the beginning. So let's get to it. It's time to talk about Sonic Youth Goo. Let's go. Things are going to change. I feel it. It just won't be that kind of body. Yes, 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 yes. I'm excited about this episode. I'm looking forward to talking about this album, the experience of listening to it for for the first time, and what it means for us uh, during this time and how it carries on to this day for aspiring musicians. And if you're not that familiar with Sonic Youth, I hope that this is a good intro for you. Or if you're a diehard fan and you're here to say you missed this detail, then so be it. Come get me. But before we do that, I want to, of course, excitedly tell you about DistroKid, my sponsor. DistroKid is, of course, the way that you can get your music heard online. So make sure you check out my link that I include in every episode, but it's also in my link tree, which is distrokid.com backslash VIP backslash waterproof. That gets you 30% off your first year of DistroKid. And if you're not quite sure what DistroKid is, because you've never heard me talk about it before, but I don't think that's true, because I'm sure you have, that is your way of getting your music on every 
every streaming platform imaginable. And they make it super easy. You upload the files and boom, you have music streaming out there in the world on all those platforms on YouTube. There's so many cool features that come along with it. So you definitely need to check out DistroKid and make sure you're using my link, distrokid.com slash VIP slash waterproof that gets you that 30% off. But now we can get into today's album and episode, which is Sonic Youth. Sonic Youth. This is a band that when you see the name, let alone you see this image right here, you know you've seen this before because it is everywhere and it was everywhere and it represents that time. Now, those who are not watching this footage right now and only listening, I'm holding up the album cover of Goo. Not a CD album cover, but can you hear that little ASMR? It's a cassette. I have a cassette of Sonic Youth's Goo right here. This is like the ASMR portion of the show. And here, wait. Oh, you got to hear this. This is the uh, this is the liner coming out of the tape case. You'll know this sound. Ready? Oh, so here's the interesting thing. I don't believe that this was. It might have been an original of mine from back then, but I remember getting. Um, goo actually for the first time on CD, but maybe I'm misremembering that. Um, but maybe I did have it on cassette. I'm just not hundred percent certain this cover right there of the couple smoking cigarettes, that mod couple in their shades and their little mopey look on their face. That is something that has been repurposed and, you know, parodied and used over and over again. People have put themselves in that image. It's turned up in memes and whatnot. And on the cover, it's the cover of these two smoking a cigarette. Well, one, the girl smoking a cigarette. And it says, I stole my sister's boyfriend. It was all a whirlwind, heat and a flash. Wait, wait, I'm sorry. My eyes are bad. Hold on. I stole my sister's boyfriend. It was all it was all whirlwind, heat, and flash. Within a week, we killed my parents and hit the road. <laughs> so, yeah, it's like this kind of Bonnie and Clyde, um, kind of, you know, even, even which would come later, natural born killers, this kind of young crooks on the road is the, is the cover there. Um, I have a lot of stories about that cover, but that is something that you see on T-shirts and you go, ah, Sonic Youth whether or not you've heard them at all. But this is 1990, June 26, 1990. And this is the sixth studio album by Sonic Youth. Six. The band dates all the way back to 1981. So this is, you know, nine years after they've been together putting out this. But it is the first album on a major label. Up until this point, they've been on smaller, uh, more independent record labels. And this is the first album that they put out um, through Geffen, they signed through Geffen, but then it was released under kind of a subsidiary, a smaller aspect of Geffen called DGC, which if you've seen my videos, I've talked about the DGC rarities and all that good stuff. So the, the band was not that happy when they found out they would sign with this big label Geffen and then they'd be put out on, on DGC at first, but it ended up working out. This is probably the most, um, I don't know if it's the most commercially successful, but this is definitely the bridge. And I chose to do this one instead of Daydream Nation because I do think that that is um, just as meaningful of an album, which is right before this one. 
But for me, this was kind of the entry point. And I think for most of us, especially young, young kids in the 90s, um, if you were older and cooler, then maybe you were already well-versed in your sonic youth or you lived in New York or you lived in a big city and you're older than I am. I'm going to remind you that I am 44 years old. So when this album was coming out, uh, June of 1990, I would have been 12. Um, and so, yeah, 12. So, or going on 12. So I wouldn't have necessarily been that plugged into the music scene as a 12 year old in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, and so Sonic Youth wasn't something that was coming my way very easily. Now, like I've talked about that college radio show, I might've heard a track on there, um, before, but I have a very specific memory of the first time I heard what I would recognize and know to be Sonic Youth. And it was in the film, Pump Up the Volume. It was the song Titanium Exposé, which is on this album. And it was on the soundtrack for Pump Up the Volume, which is the film with Christian Slater, where he's the the uh, underground DJ and he's broadcasting his troubled teens. And I loved that movie. I, I can't remember if I've talked about it a bunch in this show. I feel like I have because it is one of those 90s soundtracks that you just can't escape uh, for having such a great impact. It, it introduced me to Leonard Cohen and made me a huge fan. But I remember watching Pump Up the Volume and seeing you know him put on that main kind of, um, how do you, it's like whistly guitar riff of, of Titanium Exposé. And he's dancing around, Christian Slater's dancing around. And I remember that really, really standing out to me. Um, of what the sound of this band was. So I don't think I got this album or cassette right when it came out in 1990. It would have been after the fact. It would have been out for maybe a little while. But it was early on. And this album, the story about how they put this thing together. Um, I'm trying to think of where we start. But let's talk about who's in Sonic Youth at this point in time. It is Thurston Moore. It is Kim Gordon. It is Lee Ronaldo. And it is Steve Shelley. That's the lineup at the time. And that's the predominant lineup of Sonic, Sonic Youth throughout the uh, their career. They disbanded in 2011. They're no longer together. It was once um, Thurston Moore and Kim Gordon who married each other, you know, had a child together. Once they split up and ended their marriage, it was hard for them to be in the same space. And I don't think it's been a very happy um, split between those two. And so that was kind of the death of the band. Um, but this would be really them taking what they had developed from the early 1980s in New York and that scene, this noise rock. This was a style of music that was part of that art New York scene that was that was rising of the time. And Sonic Youth is definitely one of the people spearheading that whole noise rock sound. Now, Thurston Moore had seen bands like um, Suicide and uh, he was inspired by the Ramones and he was inspired by television to make this this sound and, and joining forces with um, Lee Ronaldo and, and Kim Gordon until they landed upon Steve Shelley. That's really what makes that sound. And it's that noise, right? It's that dissonant guitars. It's that things are, are happening at a very, it sounds like they're just playing on not well-made instruments. It sounds like things are giving a lot of feedback. It sounds rough. It sounds um, edgy. Um, that's, you know, that's the sonic youth sound. It sounds not perfected, not polished. And I'm sure for a lot of people up until 
Daydream Nation and even Goo, it was like that was the appeal, right? It wasn't commercial. It wasn't something that the public was going to be like, yeah, I want to listen to this seven minute song with uh, feedback and kind of jamming. You know, they were they were jammers. Um, not, not the kind of song structure where you're in and out of a a track in three minutes. It was noisy. It went on for a while. It was experimental, um, lots of sounds and things happening. And I remember the first time I heard it, it wasn't something that I was able to just digest easily right away. That was the thing about some of these bands that were coming out in the nineties or that I was being introduced to. Now, of course there were bands before this. But they were experimental. There always have been. But this was my introduction to that. And it wasn't always something that I was able to listen to and be like, yes, I'm in the mood for this sound. Um, much like bands like Primus, it, it, it sometimes your ear needs to be in the right mood to listen to Sonic Youth. Um, I think they're a fantastic band. But I think that when I was a kid, I had to be in the mood to put on some Sonic Youth And sometimes the mood was just right, you know, because there is a, I don't know how to put it. It's like a, there's a dirtiness to it. There's a dirtiness. There can be sometimes in the tones, a a sexiness, Um, not always, but there is this kind of movement behind the way these guitar tones kind of build and come upon you and then kind of lay the space over a period of time. Um, but it's definitely an energy that you have to be in the headspace for. Before we go into some of the details about the songs on the album, let's discuss the cover. I mentioned up front that it is pretty iconic, and I'm sure you've seen it before on t-shirts and a lot of people recreating this cover of Sonic Youth's Goo with a couple in the front, the girl smoking the cigarette, this kind of mod, cool vibe right there, but it's actually based on a pretty sad horrible story. Well, the original image is. So this was done by Raymond Pettibon. And Raymond Pettibon had seen an image in a newspaper of this couple. And now that couple were the witnesses to the Moore's murders, which is a tragic tale of uh, of murder in England in the 1960s. And that, that image, you can actually go find the original image of the couple, which is David Smith and Myra Hendley. And the original, the the killers of the story, uh, Ian Bradley and Maureen Henley, there that's who committed the murders. But these two were the witnesses, and this was an image. And Raymond Pettibon had taken that image and done, you know, an ink drawing of it, and that's where we get the cover, and that's what it's based on. I think originally Raymond Pettibon had um, had an illustration based off of Mildred Pierce, the song Mildred Pierce, and done an illustration of Joan Crawford, but decided to go in this direction instead. And that's what the band shows. Um, Raymond Pettibon, his uh, original last name is Ginn, and he is the brother of Greg Ginn, the guitarist for Black Flag. And that makes sense because Raymond did a lot of the artwork for Black Flag. And uh, Greg Ginn, of course, is uh, the founder of SST Records. And so very, very much entrenched into the music scene of that era. But anyway, that is the story of how we got to be the album cover. But let's talk a little bit about the songs on there. Um, 
I have it queued up here on my iPad. I have the songs. You know, one thing is I wish we could do on the show is I wish we could play the music. I've had people ask me that before. They're always like, it'd be so cool if you could play the songs. But that's one thing you can't really do on a podcast because I don't have the rights. I don't have the licenses. Um, if you've ever listened to me long enough, you know that um, my episode with Olivia Nilsson about Harry Nilsson, I did get the rights to play the songs in that episode, which I still have to renew like every single year. So there might be a year that I don't get to have that episode out there anymore. But the the album kicks off with Dirty Boots, which I think is in 1990. That was a great way to start this album because it was it was a more concise way to present who Sonic Youth was and had those touches of where we were headed with alternative. This is 90s, so this is before uh, Nirvana's Nevermind. This is before we go into the grunge explosion and MTV's playing all this stuff. This is really early on, so if you were paying attention at this time and you saw Sonic Youth, you were like, oh, we're we're on the precipice of something really changing in music. Um, and this, this is a perfect way to kick things off. Um, when I when I got this album, I really, really do remember getting it. And I have this memory, and this just goes to show you how much older I'm getting. I feel like I got it from one of those CD um, BMG Columbia House where you order 10 CDs and then you get the 11th one for, a you know, I mean, you get 10 CDs for a, a penny and then you pay for the 11th one. Um, but I don't know. Here I am holding this cassette tape and and I guess maybe I'm misremembering what album I got. Um the next song on the album, Tunic, Song for Karen, that is Kim Gordon writing a song and, and words based on her kind of um, obsession with Karen Carpenter. Um, she had talked a lot about how growing up and watching Karen Carpenter go from being this like girl next door, sweet, you know, family oriented artist into this emaciated kind of hollow person and drift away. And she wrote a lot of this kind of from that perspective of Karen Carpenter dying and drifting off into in heaven. And this had a lot to do with like self image and how one views yourself and how women were presented at the time and just the horrible things that led to Karen Carpenter's death, her anorexia and her poor self image um, Karen Carpenter was an incredible drummer. I don't know if you've ever seen that um, clip of her playing drums back in the day. That's something I didn't know growing up at all, that she was such a good drummer. But this, uh, there was definitely a, uh, a lot of excitement about the Carpenters from Sonic Youth. You know, they did that If, if I Were a Carpenter tribute album where they did Superstar. So they, they really liked that uh, music. Then you get to track three, Mary Christ. That's an example of a song that when I first got this, of course, I've talked about before on the show where you're a super religious kid and you get to things like Mary Christ and you're suddenly like, I guess I have to skip this song. You know, I don't want to I don't want to disturb my Christian sensibilities. And so I remember being very nervous to listen to Mary Christ when I got it. Um, But then we get to what is probably the most well-known Sonic Youth song of all time. I would I would say cool thing. Cool thing is a song that if you bring up Sonic Youth and somebody kind of looks at you as like, I don't know. And you were to show them cool thing. They would know. I I think they would be familiar with it. At least most people from the 90s. Um, It was the one that got the most airplay. It had that unique touch to it. It had all these. You know, it had Chuck D from Public Enemy guest rapping on it. It had Kim Gordon doing this vocal line and this this talking thing to it that it really stuck out. It was that it had that art off kilter side 
that Sonic Youth was putting out into into the world that nobody else was doing at the time. But the story behind Cool Thing is actually pretty interesting. Um, a year before, Kim Gordon had done an interview with LL Cool J for Spin Magazine. And she liked LL Cool J's music. She had listened to the album radio. She liked his, his style, his sound. And so she was looking forward to this interview. And then the interview, I guess, just didn't really connect the way that she had hoped in her head. You know, she, he kind of had some views about women that came across a little misogynistic. He said things like he liked Bon Jovi. And she was just really disappointed to not find any common ground with LL Cool J during this interview. And that she took that and, and transformed it into these lyrics in this song. And in some ways, she was poking fun at her own extreme leftist ideals and, you know, what she would, how a, a woman would idolize and want this from another artist. And that's where you get cool thing. It doesn't ever say LL Cool J's name in the song, but K-O-O-L, a reference. And there's a lot of lyrics in there that say, you know, can I play with your radio? That's a reference to LL song, Can't Live Without My Radio. And then I never knew this. But the refrain of, you know, I don't want to, I don't think so, that I don't think so is absolutely a calling back to LL Cool J's going back to Cali, where he's like, I'm going back to Cali, to Cali. No, I don't think so. So including the song lyric of I don't think so is absolutely a reference to LL Cool J's song going back to Cali. So this song is really her transforming this experience, this 1989 Spin magazine interview with LL Cool J and turning into something that ended up being kind of a, a feminist song. You know, all those things like would you your male white corporate oppression, all those things that are said in the song that feel a little tongue in cheek. But it also feels like a, a real statement coming from Kim Gordon. Um, I, it's very memorable. And the video, you know, with the black and white footage and the rock star elements. And then, yeah, they have Chuck D from Public Enemy guesting on there and kind of playing um, the rapper in the interview. Right. Doing those little. Yeah. Word up. Um, and Chuck D got on there. He got on this recording because he had been produced on albums by um, Nick Sinsano, who was the original producer on Goo. And had also been the original producer, or had produced Daydream Nation. Now, he was also producing stuff by Run DMC and uh, Public Enemy. And so that was the relationship there. That's how they had that access to have him come over. Now, Nick Sansano was somebody that they trusted to work on this album. But it, during the recording process, as things weren't really coming together and things were going over budget, the band ended up bringing in another guy. They brought in um, Ron St. Germain, who was a much bigger producer to help finish the album. The album, I believe, ended up costing like $150,000, which was six times the amount of the previous record. So um, they ran over budget big time on this album, but it ended up working out because you can really hear the polish and the professionalism on this. And, you know, a Sonic Youth fan would be like, I don't want it to be polished. <laughs> but I think that that's what helped bring them to more people. And I, you know, I don't have any problem with that as uh, as artists come along. I think we touched on it a little bit with the Black Album by Metallica, the episode I did not too long ago. 
there's this feeling in art and in music that the moment something becomes accessible, that the artist is sold out or somehow lost their touch. And I just, I don't know if that's true. I think it can happen. I think it can happen where if the person is motivated to be commercial and sell records to, you know, be famous or get the number one top single. That's one thing. But I think if you are somebody who just likes sounds and noise and you, you find yourself in a place where you can make it the best version of it, I feel like that's pretty appealing when you're putting together music. I feel like it would be something that as you're creating something, if somebody came along and said, um, you know that thing you did before I can, we can do it again and we can do it better. We can make it sound sharper. We can layer in more depth to your sound. I feel like that's a very appealing thing to want as an artist. And by all means, there's nothing about goo that's commercial. You know, this isn't, none of these were really crossing over into the mainstream in any way. You know, like I talked about, Dirty Boots was a good way to kick off the album with a kind of a single sound to it or even cool thing. You know, those those are accessible, but the album as a whole isn't one of those things that I think that anybody can just pick up and go, I get it right away. It's it's specifically for somebody who can learn how to enjoy noise rock um, to enjoy this this art, New York sound, the scene Um Track by track, you know, there's not much I could do. Moat, of course, is a uh, is noisy, and I think that's Lee Ronaldo singing on Moat. My friend Goo, um, another Kim Gordon doing the. <laughs> you know, this is this was another time where I'm listening to this album and I'm being introduced to vocalists kind of singing off pitch or in a droney way. You know, here I am, a, a kid, not yet a teenager. And hearing these vocals that in some ways sound out of tune, you know, not on the right pitch or like just, and that was a new thing for me. It wasn't like I had grown up hearing a lot of punk or hardcore things that were as dissonant. And so this is that introduction. I think before hearing this, I may have heard Bismarcky sing, you say he judged a friend. Oh, baby, you. I remember laughing so hard at that because it sounded like who let this guy in and sing out a key, you know, but little did I know that that was the whole style and purpose and point of Bismarcky. And this was something that I was learning at the time about Sonic Youth, you know, that the the feedback, the noise, the screeches, the wails and even the the droning of the singing or being a little bit like yelling off pitch. That was like. What they wanted. They were like, yeah, that's a good take. I want that one. The one where I sound completely out of sync or out of tune with what I'm with what I'm playing. That was the style. That was the that was going against what people would expect you to do with a song, right? And I think that there's an art to that. I think you have to be when you do it, I think you know that's what you want to accomplish. Um this album, they had a video for Mildred Pierce as well. And uh, that video, if you ever seen it, it's just that video is just three chords. You know, Thurston Moore sang Mil- Mildred Pierce a couple times and then it just breaks out into noise and crashing cymbals and just c- complete chaos by the end. And it's like a two minute song, but they had a video for it. And it's Sophia Coppola is in the video and she's the one who's kind of representing the Mildred Pierce, the Joan Crawford in that. Um, 
And then I just learned this recently, Scooter and Jinx, which is just a bunch of feedback noise, really. It's just like one minute long. That was Thurston Moore uh, had blown out his amp while recording. It had completely overheated and just exploded. And they captured some of that audio and repurposed it into Scooter and Jinx. And that's how we got that sound. Um, Another funny thing about this album is... When they first signed up to, you know, when they first got the the gig, the working title of the album was Blowjob, question mark, which I think is hilarious. Um, I think people have said that that might have just been them testing the waters with a new label to see if they had, you know, a good sense of humor about the about naming their album that. But for whatever reason, they were able to step away uh, from calling it Blowjob and then ended up calling it Goo. Um, my friend goo and I wish I knew exactly where, um, goo came from. I mean, you go from blowjob to goo. It's not that far of a jump, (laughs) I guess, but, um, I'm trying to think of some of the other things that were interesting about the, uh, about the album. Oh, in the studio when they were recording, um, Don Fleming and Jay Maskus used to be present for a lot of that time. And Don Fleming from Gumball and Jay Maskus from Dinosaur Jr. They spent a lot of time kind of as as advisors and they're working in the studio with the band. And Thurston Moore and Kim Gordon were really, really happy to have them there as friends and, and kind of creative advisors. And initially, I think that Lee and Steve were not as comfortable because it was unusual for them after so many years to have had, uh, you know, other people in the room with opinions like that. Um, it's one thing to have your engineer, your producer kind of chiming in, but you just have a couple other musicians in the room. So I think that was a difficult thing for them to adjust to. But I know that Jay Maskus, um, you know, was a big influence on some of the songwriting on Daydream Nation. I believe that Teenage Riot is even like a like totally about him. Um, but that's an interesting thing as well. But one less crazy thing that I just learned about in this whole uh, research of of digging into Sonic Youth a little bit more. Now, I'm going to share something that has nothing to do with goo, but just has to do with the early uh, beginnings of the band. You know, like I mentioned, the lineup, Thurston Moore, Kim Gordon, Lee Ronaldo and Steve Shelley. But in the early days of the band, they went through a few different drummers until they found Steve Shelley. And I did not know this until recently, but if you can believe it, the actor known as Richard Edson was the original drummer of Sonic Youth. Richard Edson was on the first EP, the first one, and then he quit the band and went to pursue a career in acting. Now, he has acted in a million things and had a a long career in, in the business, but you will know him for... Ferris Bueller's Day Off, he's the guy in the auto garage when Matthew Broderick walks up with his car with the Ferrari and says, excuse me, you speak English? And he goes, what country do you think this is? That guy, Richard Edson, that guy was the first drummer for Sonic Youth. I mean, that is something that is absolutely new information to me. If you knew that, amazing. Um, I just thought it was such a cool fact. And I know that doesn't relate to Goo, which is what we're talking about here today. But it's just one of those trivia things that I was like, I got to share this. I got to share this. Yeah, it's so cool. Um, But that's the story of Goo. This album 
was well received. It is looked back on as a, you know, kind of a, one of the most important alternative rock albums of the time, defining for a generation. And Sonic Youth would go on to create more and more albums after this. Tons. They have a, quite an impressive discography. If you ever feel like digging in and getting to know Sonic Youth, there's a lot of places. But I think that Goo is a good place to start. I think that um, Dirty is a is is definitely their. I wouldn't say it's their grunge album, but it's the much more produced. I think Butch Vig produced it, and that's something that at the time that it was coming out, it was important to have those shorter songs. It still had that Sonic Youth sound, still had that noise rock, but it was just something that people could um, digest and consume. And then you have Experimental Jet Set, Trash and No Star, you know, like all of these albums that they have so many. But Goo is really um, was the place that I started at. And the sound of Sonic Youth is so specifically theirs. It is something that um, when you want to feel that kind of surrounding screeching feedback, when you want to hear that that fullness, that uh, dingy feels like the wrong word, but it does. There's a there's an unsettling, and I mean that in the best way. I mean unsettling in the best way, where you feel that sense of um. Unease, And I think that comes from that dissonance that comes from things being out of tune or screeching or coming at you and you not expecting it that way. Um, but this was definitely my first major Sonic Youth album that I owned. And I, I bought many more after this. And I've always been a fan of that band. And they're still putting out a lot of stuff um, even after the split because there was just a tr- tremendous amount of recording that they had done in the studio. And there's a lot of you know, outtakes and B-sides and things that they're putting out in the world. So if you go and you look up their stuff streaming and you want to get started somewhere, I recommend starting maybe with Goo and uh, working your way maybe out of that, you know, because if you go back to the early days, the first albums, they're great, but I just don't know how easy it is to sit down and jump in without any other awareness to the band. But Um, anyway, I hope this has been a cool one. I feel like I haven't talked as much as I wanted to, but at the same time, like why belabor the point? You know, um, we talked a lot about just the feeling of the album and listening to it and pump up the volume. Kim Gordon was another one of those bass players that, you know, I was obviously a huge Smashing Pumpkins fan. And here was this other blonde female bass player like Darcy, Kim Gordon. So cool. Um, I, I really, really loved that about this group. I've never seen them live, uh, nor will I ever get the chance to. Thanks a lot, Thurston. I blame you. Um, anyway, that has been Waterproof Records. Thank you so much for joining me um, on this week's episode. I wanted to see if there was any other facts that I had to share. Oh, I do have one more. Well, this is outside of the album, but I have one more that I got. Um, Kim Gordon is kind of the one who gave Spike Jones his start. Um, he was creating skateboard videos at the time, and somebody had handed Kim Gordon a, uh, you know, some footage of this skate video, and that's when she decided decided to hire him to help co-direct the video for a hundred percent. And then after that, Kim Gordon and Spike Jones co-directed the Breeders Cannonball. And so she's kind of credited as being one of the people that brought Spike Jones over into the music video scene, which I thought was pretty cool. Anyway, 
I don't want to sit here and just do all these all these little weird trivia facts and tidbits along the way. I want to go ahead and wrap up the episode. So once again, thank you for uh, subscribing and sharing and joining me on the episodes of Waterproof Records. Um, I love doing this show and I have more to come and I'm hoping to make more stuff. So I can't do it without you. So please spread the word. Give me those reviews. Um, like it. Subscribe. Tell your friends. And, uh, and support the show. And make sure you check out my sponsor, DistroKid, distrokid.com uh, slash VIP slash waterproof. Once again, thanks for joining me. I'll see you next time on Waterproof Records. See you later.